a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. Thank you for all joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. The Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact. It is less about the outcomes or results of our actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illumining one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Kristen Hull. Kristen founded NIA Community Investments in 2010, a 100% mission-aligned investment fund focused on social justice and environmental sustainability, launched NIA Global Solutions in 2013 to bring activism and impact investing into public markets, <clears throat> excuse me, weaving a gender lens throughout. And prior to NIA Community, Kristen served as president and chair of the board of the Hull Family Foundation, transitioning the endowment from a traditional investment portfolio to one of the country's first 100% mission-impacted invested portfolios. Also co-founder of Impact Hub Oakland, and prior to dedicating her career to conscious investing, Kristen served as an educator and classroom teacher. Wow, Kristen, that's a lot. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hosting this and for sharing all of our stories. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. I feel really fortunate to um, to be able to share this story with our community and to be able to have this conversation with you. Why don't we begin with um, where your transition happened from education to conscious investing and was it even conscious investing at the beginning was it education and just simply into finance and something as you got into finance you realized that something was a little wonky uh sure no it i, I knew finance was wonky i knew it was so i actually started my career in finance in a way my Dad started a trading firm in our garage, as one does in California. So I had been talking puts, calls, pork bellies since I was 14. And, you know, dinner table conversations were about futures and commodities and um, what it meant for farmers to be able to sell their crop ahead of time. Um, and so, um, but mostly it was about high frequency trading. And the mantra was always to buy low sell high as often as one possibly could in a day. And so that's what I grew up. I knew um, very well modern portfolio theory, um, which that was in the 80s. Um, it wasn't very modern then. Um, and of course, we're really needing to take it postmodern now. But I've always known the benefits of diversification and some of the theories um, behind our financial world. Um, that being said, 
it felt unwieldy and a beast. And I've always wanted to make the most impact um, possible. And so for me, becoming a classroom teacher right out of college was um, the right move. I loved being in the classroom. I loved um, sharing, facilitating learning, and um, seeing that aha moment every single day for my fourth graders or kindergartners or whatever year, that really brought me to life. It wasn't until 2007 when I stepped back in, our worlds um, kind of collided. I had been on the investment committee and had served different roles in the family company, but it wasn't until we sold it um, and started a family foundation where I stepped back into finance and saw that I actually had a role to play in changing that world. And what did that world look like to you at that time when you stepped into the family foundation? What uh, was sort of the beforehand and what did you have to go through in order for it to look like what it does today? So that's a great question. We had it pretty um, easy in my particular situation because um, we had sold the company to Goldman Sachs. And so we were already, um, again, really rooted in the need for diversification. And when you sell a company to Goldman Sachs, you get mostly Goldman stock. And so we were all under both orders, but agreement that we wanted to sell that as often as we could. So every time we got the opportunity and it was every 18 months, I think we could sell a certain tranche. And so that happened to coincide with my learning about um, endowments. And so where that happened was 2007, I went to uh, the global philanthropy forum, which was actually my very first um, philanthropy gathering. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything really about philanthropy. The closest I had come maybe was selling or buying Girl Scout cookies. You know, I I had done, (laughs) my career had been, you know, on the front lines. And I knew a lot about grant writing because I was always seeking more funds for my urban classrooms and to take kids on field trips or to get books for our classroom, um, to build a library within schools that didn't have them. So I, I had been on the grant writing side, but I didn't know anything about the funding side and definitely not about foundations. And so that was actually the perfect place to start. I didn't have generations of elders telling me how it should be done or could be done or how it needed to be done. And there wasn't anyone in, um, my family that had any, um, I guess, legacy economy ways of thinking about this. And so it was really convenient when I went to this conference and found it was some of the really big players. I want to say Ford and maybe two others on stage discussing politely, but really arguing about whether you could get to 2% of your endowment towards your mission in PRIs. And I was in the back of the room you know, raising my hand saying 2%. Well, if you could do two, could it be a hundred? Well, no one called on me uh, and it didn't matter. I really got what, uh, what I needed. And I actually left the conference right then. I was like, got it. I'm on a mission, drove home, didn't have speakers for my cell phone, but I got on the phone saying, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to take the endowment and we're going to actually use it as tools for our philanthropic mission, which at that time was um, social justice and environmental sustainability. And so uh, basically taking every dollar that we had and aligning it with our mission just made 
um, since for me, the, the light bulb had gone off. And of course, it was a lovely, lovely year to get into this because pulling everything out of public markets in 2007 was fun. Um, much more fun in 2008 when we had um, done some fixed income investing, identified seven different community banks, and um, were up 2% when foundations nationwide were down 28%. So I would say that was also a key moment for me because it wasn't that I predicted the markets in any way, but I did get a lot of validation um, to keep going and to keep keep on this path. And, but how do you do that? I mean, how do you go from the entire mindset and the foundation world is like striving for 2% at this moment in 2007 and thinking that they're making um, a giant leap? You wanted to go straight to 100. Where does the 100% even come from inside of you, like to even go there? I mean, most people are framed by the world they live in. Um, Where you look, did you see somebody else? Did was there anybody else that provided an example that says, "Whoa, actually, hundred percent is possible"? Was it aspirational? Was it dreaming? Or was it a little bit like, "I don't even know how in the heck I'm going to get there," but that's where I want to go. And if so, how did you get there? Like, I mean, what steps did you really have to take? Sure, you started with community banks, but I'm guessing it's it's not just in community banks at this point. Sure. So actually. All of your questions, um, we were actually the very first foundation to be 100% in the U.S., so there weren't any peers. There was no one to look for, but I didn't. I, I think it was pretty key that I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any peers. I didn't. Had I checked in with someone, they would have told me I was crazy. And um, and again, the big foundations were arguing about whether they could actually do 2%, and they didn't find that prudent, smart, or even doable. So... Um, I wasn't waiting for approval. That was also a good thing. I didn't have peers to say, oh, you know, what do you think if I do this? You know, I didn't even know anybody. Um, Once we had it done, people started asking me. So many people started coming to me saying, what are you doing? What's going on there? How did you do that? And that's when I started to realize that there wasn't anybody else that had done this at this point. Um, and I think, again, it was because financially we were so far ahead that it was really interesting. Had the markets gone the other way, um, maybe this wouldn't have been the biggest story at that time. Um, but so we um, knew we needed liquidity because we were really heavy on the grant side and we weren't stopping at 5%. So having liquidity was really important. At that time, I didn't want any exposure to the public markets, mainly because I didn't see anything there that fit my values about the progress that we wanted to make, the social justice that we wanted to make. We really were targeting um the things that at that time uh, community banks served. So keeping money local, loans to women and people of color for small businesses. Um, By design, they're not um, bidding for international projects like pipelines, um, fossil fuel. They're actually, by definition, keeping money in local communities um, and empowering people in a social justice way. Some of the banks we identified did um, financial literacy classes for unbanked, um, immigrant populations. So it just really hit our targets in so many different ways. 
So these, there were no public equities. So when you did arrive at 100%, a couple of questions, how did you know you were at 100%, meaning how did you know you were at 100% impact? And then um, if uh, besides banks, you were all in private vehicles, what kind of vehicles were you in and how did you go about sort of chasing them down and figuring this whole puzzle out? Oh, sure. So we, well, one, I knew because we were in seven different community banks. And so, and I knew exactly where that money was going. So very transparent about where my loans were going, where the money was going. So that wasn't hard to tell at all. We were, that was easy. We were hundred percent and very proud of that was seven community banks. Um, at that time, we were one of Imprint Capital's first clients. And so they helped us identify and vet a lot of these things. Um, my main interests at that time were and continue to be um, my hometown of Oakland, California, and then also um, Venezuela, um, where I spent a lot of time and lived as a teenager. And so um, I did task them with finding me investments in Oakland and Venezuela, and none of those that didn't happen. So it took for many different reasons, I might have outgrown um, imprint and so moved on and did near community where I could focus on women, people of color in Oakland. And so I um, left the family foundation and then started that body of work. Um, and then did the LLC officially in um, 2010. And that was, I guess, just also interesting to note that I had enough experience in the foundation world that I knew I wanted to do alternative term sheets. And I really wanted to push the edges of social justice in our investing. And so having a traditional foundation felt like it could possibly be too constricting to me. And so I incorporated as an LLC and as a pass through so that I had NIA community investments. And then I also had NIA community foundation. And at the time of the design, this is all pre-Zuckerberg before they did a very similar thing uh, many years later. Um, I think at the time, I thought all of the proceeds from any revenues generated from these investments would then go pass through to the foundation and be granted out. That has since changed. My thinking is that I'm making a lot of impact in these early stage investments on the LLC side. And so a lot of that is getting recirculated through that vehicle. Before I continue, just one technical, it sounds like a cat sort of tapping your desk or something, or is that your hand that every once in a while I hear a tap? I don't know. Oh, okay. Not sure. <laughs> no, okay. I, it's, I don't I'm, have I'm, a it's like this sort of tapping sound I hear every once in a while. So let's um, so that the audience understands. You had your family foundation, uh, the whole family foundation, and then uh, Nia. So the, the Nia is separate from the family foundation. Is that correct? And the family foundation continues to exist today as a one hundred percent impact foundation. Is that correct? Right. I'm no longer involved in that entity. And you're no longer involved. I noticed that you said you didn't find anything in the public equities market when you started to move the foundation to hundred percent impact. Curious about how much of the inspiration for setting up NIA as a potential solution for public equities uh, with an impact lens and just sort of take us through that migration of when, when you realize like, wow, there's something much bigger going on for me here on my journey as an impact investor 
and also as a thought leader. And I want to start a platform all of a sudden, because there's one thing about investing on your own account, but there's sure as heck of a much different um, level of commitment when all of a sudden it's like not only my own account, but I'm trying to shepherd the masses to going in this direction. Right. Thank you for recognizing that. It's different. It's different. It's a different level of commitment. Um, maybe I need to be committed. Um, so, yeah, so I did the first 100% foundation 2010. I think that was the second one in the U.S. to be 100% impact invested. And so I was on a roll. I was doing this at that point. People were paying attention and asking me and fully transparent always about my investments. I carry a copy around with me. So if anyone asks, it's also all of our investments are listed on a very simple, simple website, but just showing every single thing we've ever invested in for full transparency. So it's available. And I was being asked to speak and to consult with family foundations, um, family offices, individual investors, and I was sharing my journey and showing them different types of investments. Um, a couple things. One, I wasn't in public equities at all. And I was completely happy and in fact proud and probably had a little chip on my shoulder about that because I was having the impact I wanted to have and um, getting the returns I needed and I had the liquidity I needed um, without the public market. So um, I was good. However, the story wasn't translating in a way that was moving money. I kept saying the water is warm, come on in. And for many different reasons, um, the patriarchy's alive and well, there's that, but there were also just um, our capital world is frozen in some certain beliefs, but also we're very wedded to public markets in this country. And so um, a couple things shifted for me is one, I knew that I had already done the work of my own um, capital and that it was really maximized as far as what I was able to achieve and that that needed to leverage more capital and that my story needed to be translatable so that it would motivate others. And so for me, that meant I had to go back into public markets to make the story more appealing and to have a sample portfolio that others could follow. And um, I looked at with, this was actually early days with imprint um, two years I spent researching on my own and I had them bring me every possible thing. And there just wasn't anything that met my criteria at that time. I wanted a portfolio of a hundred percent solutions focused companies. I didn't want to start with an index and then screen out some of the bad players um, that had been going on for a while known as SRI, which I actually have to just put a little thing. The fact that it's called responsible, socially responsible investing, I think is a misnomer. I think it makes us sleep better because we think we're being responsible and yet we're really still uplifting our incumbent economy. Um, that has a lot of mediocre players. So both on the risk perspective, but also on the impact perspective, we're not being as responsible as I felt we needed to be. So I was really looking for to take my NIA community portfolio and bring that type of almost a, a venture style um, and approach into the public markets. And that at the time didn't exist. And so um, that's I was I was kind of like, oh, oh, man, really? So um, 
and no one was doing it the way I wanted it done. And so I built the portfolio so that it would be available to others so that they could have the types of impact that I was having in my portfolio, but keep the best qualities of the public markets. And so for me, there's something nostalgic about um, public stocks in that it's the first way that we democratized investing in that um, everybody can own, you know, one stock um, and have that potential for growth and that potential for what our economy is doing. So to build a well-diversified, beautiful portfolio with public stocks was started to become appealing to me. It was also a real big challenge and almost like a chess game to figure it out. And then the other part of public markets that's interesting um, and we can't lose sight of is daily liquidity. A lot of the companies and things that I was doing on the NIA community side um, didn't offer daily liquidity and in fact had many years lockup um, that wasn't going to be appealing and it wasn't going to help new investors get into the game and shift their capital. So meeting people where they were at, but with a really impact designed portfolio was really essential. I also knew that by moving away from the S&P, um, we were going to access a lot more potential for alpha. Um, having an active share and investing differently um, gives investors exposure to all sorts of solutions that have traditionally been overlooked in our indexes. So you used a couple terms. Help me understand what you mean by you had to structure it as a venture style. And then what does it mean to have solution focused companies as part of your public equities portfolio? Sure, sure. So basically, I started with um, a very similar process, I'm guessing, that the UN went through. I wasn't actually invited to sit at that table. However, we had uh, the NIA six solution themes, which line up with the UN SDGs really well. So there's 17 of those. We encapsulate it with six, but it's everything that people and planet need to thrive together sustainably. And so that's everything from sustainable infrastructure, um, sustainable transportation, access and innovation with healthcare, um, education, communications. So we were working on what are the themes that are needed for people and planet. And that's how we begin our investment process is on the research behind what's available, what are the solutions within our solution themes. And that's how we build the portfolio that way. And then you asked one more question. Oh, the whole idea you mentioned you had to structure it as a venture style. You use oh, your right. Product. So looking at a company um, for its growth potential, um, basically indexing is very male-centric. Um, size is a male concept, and it doesn't really appeal to those of us um, with a feminine side. So um Choosing companies based on how large they are doesn't make sense to me. To me, I want to know what is the purpose of the company? Um, what are its revenues? You know, where does it come from? What, what are the products and services? And then does it have an effective team to get that job done? Those are the things that are interesting to me, not um, where the headquarters are. Sometimes the headquarters is interesting, right? You know, because... Um, particularly when it's global, we'll go anywhere to look for that. But the size of the company really um, wasn't going to be the key factor in our decision. We are so capsize agnostic. Um, and it does turn out that you can find solutions focused things in every capsize. And so that's been really important to not limit our search um, just based on size.
I guess it's easier. Maybe I'd sort of need a tangible example of a non-solution based investment versus a solution based investment uh, so that the audience can really understand what what um, a clear solution focused company looks like versus one that's not so clear. Okay, so given our six solution themes, we are looking at, um, so water is one of the things that we really care about. And so what are the publicly traded companies that are helping um, get people clean water, keep our water clean, access to water, people that are solving for that issue and the companies behind those people solving for those issues could then make it into our portfolio. Now, another criteria in addition to being solutions focused is that we do require diversity and leadership. And so that does knock out about 50% of the companies we look at. What um, does that look like? Um, just so that uh, we're not assuming what uh, diversity uh, looks like. I mean, what does diversity uh, look like to you? Okay, so that's a really good question because on the NIA community side of things, we invest in women and people of color-led firms and companies and startups. Um, our banking is around those issues. In the publicly traded markets, we don't always have that kind of diversity and that access. So we have a very minimum criteria. And then we also do a lot of advocacy about increasing both on the government policy side um, and then also the corporate leadership side, how we're going to shift that. So what does it look like to us is um, 50% women and then also people of color woven throughout. We would actually love to see age um, and various other types um, of abilities and disabilities um, within that. And yet, publicly traded companies, we have a pretty heavy lift to get there. So to speak about diversity or to challenge diversity is often sort of a, um, you know, sort of, um, I guess it can be sort of a colorful conversation because a lot of people have a lot of different assumptions around it. Um, one in particular, um, besides you being a woman yourself and seeing um, certain things, I know your background in Oakland has exposed you to um, a lot of particularly women of color who have an immense amount of talent but lack access to resources and mentorship, and you've been very active on that front. But the larger case for making the diversity as a essentially a diligence, it's, it's a risk issue for you almost at some level from what I read. It's like if you're not diversified, you're actually exposing your company to more uh, risk from a lack of um, inputs, um, a lack of sort of collecting all of the intelligence as possible around a particular solution. Can you Help me understand how you got to that conclusion and then what kind of pushback have you potentially received since you did acknowledge that there is a particular inertia in the finance community and um, just sort of wondering how that, you know, those edges have rubbed up against each other as you've been on this journey. Sure. So there's a few questions within that and it's a heated topic. It is. Um, so, there's plenty of research. Um, the financial research is there, although I would say the financial industry has been late to come to that. Many different sectors and spheres from psychology to innovation to anthropology have all documented the benefits of diverse leadership. So everything from more innovation, um, more rich conversations, um, 
in the finance world, there's some fun facts. The minute you add um, women to the board of directors, meetings start on time. Um, (laughs) It's true. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Women actually read the board packets as far as stereotypes go. And so if you get enough women in there that are reading the board packet, the men start to read the board packet too. Um, women tend to not vote on something or make decisions on something they don't understand. So they ask questions, um, whereas men streamline through to get to the golf course, as far as a lot of stereotypes go, that has been true in corporate America. And so it does slow up the process and um, the research is finding that it makes more meaningful decisions. Another reason that I think makes sense to a lot of investors is that on the stereotype side, men are better at short-term thinking and women are better at long-term thinking. And so wouldn't you want those two types of thinking together in making decisions for your companies? So um, lots of things there. Pushback, Um, tons of pushback. The men want to see the research. They want to know quantifiably how this is going to work, whatever. Women know it makes sense. So that's been really interesting. Um, Of course, if it were reversed, and we were, you know, women controlled 98% of the economy, the men wouldn't be asking for the research. They'd say, we want this diversified, you know? Um, But in this case, it's interesting that the people that are the group, I would say, that's in power now making those decisions are the ones that are demanding more research and, um, and really questioning this idea that we should change the status quo. Um, so that's been definitely surprising to me. I have an academic background, as you know, we share that. And so I like the research um, and, um, and I'm willing to go with that. Um, we're seeing that, you know, this week, Climate Week, uh, there's a lot of uh, research deniers, you know, science deniers. And so um, it's definitely true in our financial industry as well, despite the data about better performance for companies um, and better portfolio management by women and um, people of color-led teams. And yet so few um, of our teams are led by women or people of color. And then I don't know if you're familiar with the Knight study, um, the Knight Foundation contracted with Harvard University, and they put out a study in 2017 of asset managers in um, of the trillions that are managed. They also redid it and put it out again January of this year. Um, and the numbers are terrible. And so the shifts really do need to happen. Um, I think our people and our planet are depending on us to get more diversity into both corporate America and our finance industry. Where, like, where do you see, so I'm guessing part of the pushback is, is that um, is diversity for diversity's sake a virtue um, in the sense that where, like, where is the limitation when, when the communities and the public sector just hears, we need diversity, we need diversity. And I'm suspecting that the pushback is at some level denial, but there's also somebody who would probably say, well, is a diversity for diversity's sake, but then how do you vet out um, merit versus diversity? Uh, so the value of diversity for the sake of merely saying, oh, you have a certain number of minorities, which is a semiotic cultural category. Uh, so so remember, so now all of a sudden, this world of gender um, potentially is using buckets to put people in. But when you receive part of the pushback, I'm suspecting part of it is, is like, well, yeah, I'm open to it. 
But am I going to be pushed into a scenario where it's like I also left somebody on the sideline just because I had to sort of check this box off, uh, but they weren't necessarily qualified. So, and that may be a complete myth. I'm just sort of, but I do suspect that that may be part of the underbelly in terms of the pushback. Yeah, I think it's a myth. I know it's a myth and I think it's a significant part of the pushback. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, so, so, but I mean, I mean, all myths have some kernel, uh, potentially sort of a, a kernel of traction and, and truth, or do you think it's a complete fabrication? Well, I think that the people saying those things haven't met the women that are qualified. Uh, so I think it's true for them. Um, I think, I mean, what the research is saying is that groups want to choose from their own. And it's much easier to reach within your own networks to get that next board member. And then if you bring on a golf buddy, you're already kind of in with them, you know their style, you know everything. So your meetings can move forward without much change. So I think there's a little bit of the underbelly is what will this be like an unknown to invite someone in that's different. Um, it can be challenging. And I think that's one of the benefits to corporate leadership is that when someone is different, you do have to stop and lots of your practices get questioned because there's someone new from outside the group. So it's almost like that uncomfortable piece is the additive piece sometimes. So does it work in reverse? Uh, last week I was speaking with uh, Lisa Curtis uh, from Cooley Cooley Foods, um, who started a Moringa food company in in the Bay Area. She said that she has a very difficult time uh, receiving male applicants. Um, almost all, as a woman founder of the uh, of her organic food company, I believe they're based in the Oakland, uh, San Francisco area. Uh, she says that the dominant amount of um, applications that she receives are all from women. And so her her emphasis and her struggle has been how to get men to actually apply for these particular jobs. Yeah, that's a great challenge to have. I welcome that challenge for sure. Absolutely. You welcome that challenge. So now I, do you have that at your firm in terms of how many how many men are offering their perspective at, um, at, at NIA? So we strive to be fully diverse. And um, what I would love to do is add more diversity to our analyst team. So, um, and that honestly has been really, really hard to come by because our financial industry isn't very diverse. So finding analysts um, that have another perspective is something that NIA needs to thrive. Um, but I think because we're in the financial industry, men are there and available for sure. But what I'm, I, what I guess I'm getting at is how much of what Lisa was talking about is a sort of a deep primal natural attraction to one's own. And I mean, how do you sort of educate people around that? Just that it's such a deep, as just being an animal on earth that's trying to preserve their own sanctity of life, that there is sort of this natural attraction to move toward others that look like, feel like, sound like, but that live like you. Um, and, and so how do we go beyond, um, there's part of the crowd that likes to shame. There's another part that likes to educate. Um, and just trying to understand the different approaches on how we sort of get to the virtues of cooperation over just our first 
compulsion may be to sort of compete and to think in terms of scarcity. And so I just want to hang out with my own tribe. Right. So I don't experience that. And it might be that I grew up as a minority in Oakland um, as my first experiences in school were about collaborating, about working across differences, about um, friendships across class and race um, and gender. And so um, I think being outside of that bubble has been surprising to me. Um, and I've been trying to work against that ever since my childhood. So um I think those that are really, truly interested in innovation know that they have blind spots and they want those filled with people that think differently, that have different experience of the world. And that's how they're going to be more innovative. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a blind spot to think that. Um, more of our own is going to help anything. Um, and I think for me, I've always wanted to grow and do the very best work. And so I know that I'm going to need brains that are thinking differently than I am. And so I try to fill my team with very different um, and diverse experiences, um, backgrounds, thinking. What does your team currently uh, look like right now, Kristen, in terms of diversity? Um, you can look on our website and you can see most of our team members are there. We have quite a few part-time people that didn't make it to the website, but um, we're pretty darn diverse. So um, we probably lead heavily on the women, um, women-owned firm. And um, and yet, I guess I would say one thing, we definitely have hired for values um, and for core alignment and not so much for financial experience. Those are things that we can teach. Um, I can definitely teach sustainable finance. In fact, that's one of the main things we love doing. We have a change the face of finance internship program, and we love to welcome um, young women, girls, people of color into that program so that they can get a taste of what does it mean to be in sustainable finance and take that with them. Um, so we have a similar philosophy in hiring that um, traditional finance isn't really where we're headed anyway. And so that experience hasn't been prime as far as number one that you need to be on our team. Do you um, it, sort of take us through the journey of starting um, an actual um, financial firm? Um, because, I mean, you, you know, your assets under management start at zero, um, excluding your do. own. You know, mm -hmm. I see I'm excluding your own. So you have to bootstrap this. Um, you have to bring people on. You have to, you know, you have, you're sharing this dream in advance of really any traction. And, you know, and then eventually you have clients that start to come on board. But sort of take me through a moment of like, where it just wasn't clear. And it's like, am I really doing the right thing here? Um, and just sort of the moment, the inevitable doubt, moment that any founder of any, um, you know, especially something that's antithetical to mainstream or dominant culture, there's inevitably moments of like, gosh, I feel really alone in this journey. And if you can sort of walk me through a particular story um, or a moment of truth that you encountered, especially sort of early on. Oh, sure. Well, it's not just early on. That That is what I live <laughs> every day. So, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, I I think early on I was still pretty naive about, um, you know, I had discovered a missing hole um, as far as what was offering in our financial markets, particularly, you know, in access to innovation and solution focus in public equities. And um, 
I mean, like many entrepreneurs, but I thought I will build it and they will come. And my gift was to build it and then it would be available to the masses. And that's not at all how our financial industry works and it's not how they want to work. So it turns out, um, and it's a good thing I didn't know all of these things getting started because, um, you know, who knows? I probably would have started it anyway, but boy, is it, um, you know, it's a heavy lift. It's a heavy lift to get a new product to market. And so in particularly being female, um, again, our systems aren't set up for that and they're not set up for small teams and they're not set up for products that are so different than, um, and not trying to be a benchmark, right? So right now, public equities, um, with modern portfolio theory and the, and the, the invention of the indexing, which kind of became popular in the 90s, we have moved from individual stock selection to buying one ticker symbol that has 500 stocks or 3,000 companies behind that. And so to bring in transparency and really careful selections in a concentrated small portfolio that does impact reports every quarter and does educational materials, it's a lot for people to get their, you know, wrap their brain about why they would want it. Um, and why it's offering so much more or a different way to access investing than some of the other products that are their go-to easy, literally, you know, click a box products. So um, it's definitely been a heavy lift. I do a lot of educating, explaining, um, showing our fact sheet to walk people through how we're outperforming, where the outperformance comes from, how our stock selection and our criteria actually um can outperform the market. I think um, one of the myths that we're still, you're probably in this too, is trying to overcome is that you can do good or you can do well. And we actually find that financially we're going to do better by investing in the solutions that people need um, and that the planet requires. And yet that's not a commonly held belief yet. And so I do a lot of explaining. Um, I think what keeps me going are presentations where investors go, wow, that is refreshing. It's different. I can own companies that are outside of the norm and I can actually do better. And I can know that, of course, I don't have any fossil fuels or weapons or, you know, ammo distributors. Um, but actually all of my money's really invested into the world that I want to see. So I think to the extent that we can connect those dots, it'll get easier. And yet, um, the big banks have these emerging manager programs that have not been successful because um, many you need to have 500 million under management to be qualified. Um, others and or you need to have 25 full time employees. Um, so the barriers are quite high, oh, impossibly high. They're really impossibly high to get to some of these things. And so um, to have the distribution that makes a small team a small firm sustainable um, is almost impossible to get to. And yet we're getting there. So um, the challenge is real. I'd say the challenge is real for sure. Hmm. And so with all this going on on a daily basis, how do you outside, like, I mean, how do you stay centered in that storm? Um, because it can almost feel like a daily storm at an operational level at an, at a um, outreach level, and it can also feel like we're so close yet so far. And in the end, we have to sort of get up each day and feel a positive emotion at some level in order to put one foot in front of the other. How do you 
Um, and what like practice or tools do you use on a daily basis to actually stay centered in the midst of like, Hey, look, I just got rejected 10 times in a row here. I know my story fell on dull ears, but, um, there's something larger at work here. Those are such good questions, right? Because sustainability begins at home within, right? And if I want a sustainable planet that's inclusive, um, I need to be sustainable and my team has to be sustainable. So um, today we are um, walking around the lake, uh, which is I'm at Lake Merritt in Oakland, and to have lunch at Lake Chalet and do our brainstorming about um, our next quarter. And we're going to do it outside on the lake. Um, so we take our meetings outside when we can. We also participate in a lot of community events, and that keeps us grounded in what's important and what's real. So NIA sponsors so many social justice um, and environmental sustained um, organizations in our local community, and we love to be among other change makers. I think that's really important for us is to build community around the work we're doing, even though, yes, it feels really isolating in the public market work. Um the rest of the work, there's so many people working hard. So um, being able to do that together. One thing I do is I have an impactful women's group and organizing women in the impact investing space. And I'm also part of a fabulous group of women CEOs of B corporations and the B Corp movement um, is wonderful. It actually was led by three men and it still needs to be diversified. And so women CEOs are between 10 and 15% of the B Corps, um, people of color, much less than that. And so we actually have our work to do within that movement um, and gathering with our people has been really important. And so um, organizing with our people. Actually, one of the organizations we support is Outdoor Afro, and we organized a group rafting trip for women leaders um, this summer. So that was, you know, so fun to be on the rivers, learning about our California river system and just having fun pushing our edges with awesome women. Then on the personal side for me, getting outside, super important. Um, um, you know, I have a yoga practice. I have a meditation practice. Um, I hike with my dog. Um, but I think it's really building community of change makers that is what keeps me going. And the other thing is that as the light bulbs go off for, you know, whether they become Nia clients or not, isn't really our main objective. That might be part of our problem. We just want people to invest and feel really aligned and that their portfolios really reflect them and that they can see themselves and that they're um, they can see themselves in their investments and that their investments are an extension of, of them and their goals and that they really get that their money is going into the economy. And so can they shift it into the economy that they really want to have? And when those light bulbs go off, we get excited and that propels us forward um, in this heavy lift. And um, the no's that you mentioned are really just not nows. Um, that's, um, and I'll just mention one, you know, um, several years ago, uh, it was one of the headlines had come out for one of the things that Wells Fargo was experiencing. And, um, you know, there were too many to keep track of. And I said to somebody at Wells Fargo that, you know, hey, it might be interesting to look at Nia as a possibility to retain some of your clients and offer some value and some transparency and they said, no, that is never going to happen. Like they cut me off and they said, you know, Wells will never be interested. And I was like, okay, that's too bad, you know. And then we got the call um, recently saying we need to have Nia on the platform. And so 
Um, I think things are shifting. I think that the type of transparency we offer, the type of gender lens that is so deep and woven throughout everything we do, um, and then, of course, the financial performance is becoming interesting to people. And so we're going to stay in there um, until everyone has access to some kind of product like Mia. What, uh, like, where do you find um, when you have this gender overlay? I'm just curious on um, amongst your clients and the people that are receptive, what particular issue or value, uh, or I guess issue, because it would be more of a value thing, sort of the gender, um, in terms of the way I'm going to frame it. Um, what issue are is attracting people the most when gender bumps up against it? Is it wealth inequality? Is it climate? I, you know, just pick, just, just sort of pick your issue. Um, but I'm just sort of curious on where the light bulb is going off for people in terms of the intersection between gender and X, Y, Z. I just don't know what the X, Y, Z is in terms of where, like, where all of a sudden you're seeing, like, aha, there's there's some critical mass forming around this who's seeing gender as basically a catalyst to amplify this issue and to break this issue open even more. Um, just sort of curious on how sort of that intersectionality is is working with gender and one particular topical area. Sure, sure. So that is the topic of the day. And um, we, you know, can't separate gender from our decisions. We have, we're looking first at products and services, and all of them have to be beneficial to women and girls on some level. That's where we start our process. Um, I would say, you know, again, I said we are very much in alignment with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And to achieve any one of those goals without doing it with a gender lens is going to be really, really hard. So even though gender is, um, I think it's number five, no. I'm getting that confused with the uh, drawdown. But at any rate, um, weaving a gender lens, you know, you've probably heard it said that climate change is a man-made problem and it requires a feminist solution. Um, it's not untrue about uh, investing, about building a portfolio, about thinking about products and services as well as management team. So um, it is pretty much I guess I would attribute our good returns to having woven those two together because there aren't, I mean, there are gender lens products and there are um, sustainable or green products, but there isn't anyone else doing it the way we're doing it. And I think that might be part of our, our secret sauce. But and perhaps can you ground it and color it in for me uh, in terms of what that actually looks like? Sure. Like, sure. So uh, yeah. like, um, Etsy is a company, you know, right. Um, 89% of the sellers are women. Um, we love that they do a really good job of getting um, education to their sellers. And so about building websites, about e-commerce, about packaging in sustainable ways. We like that women um, who are raising kids can work from home. Um, so the empowerment of women is a big lens for Etsy. Of course, we don't mind that they're taking market share away from Amazon. We like that too. Um, so there's some interesting things there. Um, Rasona Holdings, another example in Japan, um, up until Rasona, women could deposit money in banks, but they couldn't take it out as a product, as a loan. Um, and so Rasona is basically solving for something that was missing in the market, and they're doing really well there. Um, also in Japan, not very common to have women in leadership. At Rasona Holdings, not only on the board, but so it's vertical and it's 
horizontal because branch managers are women. And then it translates into these products built for women and then also for elderly that um, have been discriminated against in banking as well in Japan. And so those are a couple examples. Um, I would say our tech industry hasn't been leading, leading, leading as far as including women. Um, and yet we have some awesome companies there. Vestis is a fabulous Danish company doing wind and they are actually part of the Hawthorne club and the network, which we encourage all of our um, energy companies because that is kind of where the badass women in energy hang out. And so if you are looking about building your pipeline, building your board, building, um, you know, um, your employee base, that's a really great place to be. Investus is there leading and sponsoring. So um, I hope that gives you a sense of how we're thinking about um, products, issues, um, company selection. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're coming up on the hour and I wanted to, um, we shared a lot with each other. I want to make sure that, was there something that um, was sort of that emerged within you during the last hour that you would like to finish with or something that like um, I didn't raise that you feel like would round out the conversation? I just want to share my appreciation, Gino, for um, your willingness to highlight the stories of those of us that are really trying to work at systems change and recognizing that it can be lonely here trying to change a system, paddling upstream. Um, you know, sometimes our rivers are polluted. Uh, you know, sometimes there's currents and heaviness. I mean, there's a lot going on in here. And so to be able to share the story has been really, really great. Um, your questions have made me think for sure about what is the story and what is the work and how can we involve more people um, and just bring as many into this fold because um, it's going to be more fun that way. And we're going to get the work done in a way where Greta will be happy if we join together. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Greta. She, she's taken America by storm this past week. Thank God. Thank God. And there are other awesome um, young girls of color doing that work. So Greta is um, kind of our our hero right now. And yet we do need to follow all of the youth who are um, really engaging and trying to hold our leadership accountable. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Uh, this is Gino Borges uh, finishing up the conversation with Kristen Hall. And I would like to thank you. Um, we will be posting this to the website and also sharing it with different impact uh, investing platforms. And so stay tuned if you caught us um, midway or if you want to share it with friends. We will both have an audio and a cleaned up transcript here within a couple of weeks. Uh, again, thank you so much, Kristen. Appreciate your values and, and, and your ability to just be um, extremely passionate yet also human at the same time. Thank you, Gina. Ciao. <laughs>